Well, good morning. If you would, bear with me as I pray for just a moment. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. We thank you for the the joy to sing songs to your name. And Lord, many times we must confess the joy is not in our hearts. Lord, our minds are preoccupied with other things. Our attention is pulled in other directions to lesser gods and to lesser things. Lord, may we hate such things. May we mortify such things. May we instead return to the author and perfecter of our faith. May we remember Jesus high and exalted and know that he alone, that you alone are worthy of worship. Guide our hearts to this. Warm our hearts to such efforts. Help us, Father, to proclaim your name and to live contentedly in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I like some good old Christian, or uh, Christian, well, yeah, that too, some Christmas music. Um, I'll listen to it at random times throughout the year. Priscilla does not. If I start playing Christmas music a little too early, she gives me the look like, what on this planet are you doing? Like, why are you playing the first Noel in July, buddy? You know, it's, she says, I love the Christmas music, just not until it's the right time. Kind of like a lot of people with their Christmas decorations. Don't put them out before Thanksgiving. Or you'll get some pizza. I got to eat. That's right. Out of somebody over there. All right. I got the amen section. And then other people will leave them up for months after, seemingly. Uh, we all have our, our things like that. But one of the songs, or many of the songs actually, will, will proclaim to us uh, that this is the hap- happiest season of all. That this is uh, the greatest time of the year. This is when everyone is more chipper and happy. But I don't think those people have done a whole lot of Christmas shopping. I don't. I mean, I grew up, of course, in the era of, uh, you know, the, the 80s and all. And I remember my brother and I standing out in the snow waiting to get a Nintendo. The original Nintendo with the little robot and the, the gun, the duck hunt and all this Mario Brothers and all that stuff. And I, re- I don't remember there being a lot of joy. And then the Black Friday boom that has subsided somewhat because of Amazon and whatnot. Uh, As you go out shopping, you don't see a ton of smiling, happy people. You remember the, um, what were the name of those ugly dolls that were real big back in the, the garbage? No, cabbage. Cabbage patch, is that what they were? But they had like the, the, the Mad Magazine version, the garbage pail kids or something like that. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, but there was like a craze for that. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen the videos of people that are out shopping and people actually fighting for a last toy or something. It's just remarkable. It's remarkable. Uh, it's not a season or a time of year known for contentment. It's not a time of year that's known for uh, being when everyone is very thankful and we also tragically are aware that this is the highest time of year for people to commit suicide. Depression, memories come back, nostalgia hits, whatever. I don't understand exactly. But for every up, there's a down. 
And so we know this is not idyllic this time of year. We know that quite often what we have is a restless soul within us. And if we're honest, all of us in deep within struggle with contentment. We struggle to actually be satisfied with what is our portion in life. Envy in one form or another, covetousness, jealousy, these things all rear their head. And we can see it many times on Christmas morning when someone doesn't get what they wanted or wasn't expecting. Uh, Sadly, sometimes we see exactly what's in our hearts as we go through this time of year. This has been a great wrestling match in my soul. That is, uh, as I've thought about my own life and the things that I've wanted and things I've wanted to do or, or to obtain in life, and one of the great wrestling matches is contentment. Many of you probably that have asked me, you might recall, you've asked me, how can I pray for you? I usually say the war is for contentment. That's where the battleground lies. That's where I'm deep in the fight quite often. I read various books on the subject and, and try to come to terms with these things and to understand it better. Let me try to pass along a few things I've learned in my travels of trying to understand how contentment works in my life, in our lives as children of God. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful book on the subject of contentment. And in many ways, he is the guy that, that uh, is kind of a fountainhead for much of the subject. Here is his definition, if you can stick with me, of contentment. It is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Burroughs was a Puritan, can you tell? Burroughs had a very good way of putting this. And to really absorb it, you have to kind of chop this up a little bit. Let me read through it one more time before I give you a more updated version, you might say, of it. He says, A sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Or as another author who considers his work trying to kind of an extension of what Burroughs did, Andrew M. Davis, he said this, Contentment is finding delight in God's wise plan for my life and humbling, humbly allowing him to direct me in it. My personal definition that I often keep in my head, I find from a couple of places combined from Psalm 73 and Proverbs 30, which is basically just to say, I'm satisfied with that which is my portion. God has given me a particular lot, a particular series of things, trials, problems, complications, joys. He's given me a particular lot in life. I want to be satisfied in that. Uh, Many times the problem with discussing contentment is that it gets confused or muddled up with complacency. But the fundamental difference between the complacent and the content is hope. You will find a complacent person if you take away from them the things they like. They are quick to be angry, frustrated, venting, whatever. Sin pours out. The contented person, however, when you take things away from them, you don't find them 
whining, complaining, bickering, and arguing to get what they want. You see a fundamental difference between the two. Sometimes they look similar, though, as is always the case with the perversions of Satan. Satan takes every God-ordained virtue and he gives you a perverted version. He gives you a false front. And complacency at times can look like contentment until a trial comes. And then the fire of trial reveals the authenticity of the virtue or lack thereof. I find quite often that complacency is more common in my life than contentment. And I notice that because I can think I'm content and then I'm on my way to church in the morning or something, like maybe this morning, and there's a slow vehicle in front of me. There's a garbage truck on a particular day with a foul odor in August. You know, and I think I'm fine. I think I'm good. And then that starts, you know, that smell starts wafting into the car and it's going too slow and I got somewhere to be. And you don't find within me a sweet, quiet, inward disposition. You find within me a like, oh, are you serious right now? Come on, garbage guy, at least close the lid. You know what I mean? Speed it up. What's going on? See all the hostility that starts coming out. That's not a contented person. We find quite often that we can see the difference between the two when it comes to competition. You'll find many a man who makes, you know, the, the claim to follow Christ when he steps on the court playing a sport with other guys, playing basketball or something like that, you find a very different individual. Or, if he's getting a little past that time in his life, when he's watching sports and his team is losing and the ref didn't make the right call and whatnot. So complacency and contentment are not the same. They should not be confused. We have to continue to fight to keep the proper definition in front of us as we do that. How do we uh, see contentment displayed in Scripture? I'd like to show you a few things, a few things that really boggle the mind. If you want to find contentment in Scripture, there's no one else really better, of course, to look at than Jesus Christ. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes upon him. Speaking of that, go over to Hebrews chapter 12. This will not be a typical sermon for me. I'll be jumping you around here and there. I tend to stay in a spot, but today I'll jump you around some. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, just to set the context, you know this text well, I'm sure, but... I would like to read it anyway, verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, concluding, pulling together an argument, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This illustration is ready-made for us. We, Everyone who's ever done any serious, especially distance running, understands this. You put everything off that could slow you down. You make it as easy as possible for you to run quickly. That's how we ought to consider our Christian lives. What are the things that are slowing you down, entangling you? What are the things that are keeping you from running well? Well, we can get into that 
and we, maybe at another time I, I would spend time here, but anything like the news, if it's stressing you out all the time, if it is sports, if it's provoking you to anger, on and on it goes, social media, any of these things, are these things slowing you down? Well, then get rid of them. Why? Because, verse 2, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't know how you read this text, but quite often I'm, I'm reading through it rather quickly, it seems, because I know it too well. But when I fix my eyes on Jesus, when I look at him and how he lived, and I consider that he is the author and perfecter of faith, he's the, he's the drumbeat that I follow. How did he do what he did? Well, you could say, well, he's God, so, and that's often what we do. Often what we do is we remove any thought of humanity from Christ and just act like, well, he had a cheat code, so it doesn't really count. You know, he, he's, he's a different level than the rest of us. And in many ways, of course, he is. He's the God-man. He's unique. At the same time, he is the, the fixation of our focus. Anytime you start drifting down the bench to another individual, you will be disappointed. As by God's design, we've, we're thankful that Scripture shows us the flaws of our heroes. We're thankful that it shows us that Moses was a man like us. We're, we're thankful that we see David's failure if we think about it properly. Because I don't look at King David. I don't look at the Apostle Paul even. I look at Christ and I see how they imitate Christ. And I follow in that, that wake. But... We fix our eyes rather on Jesus, who for the joy set before him was able to endure the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw a greater goal. He realized what was before him. He realized that before the crown of glory, he would wear the crown of thorns. That is the mental disposition I have to steal my mind with. I have to understand as a child of God, I am not entering into a playground. The world is not a playground, it's a battleground. And it's so easy in our day and age with the blessings that we've enjoyed to imagine the world as not that bad. Perhaps it is that the Lord has us passing through a, per, a political time like such as we are experiencing now so that we will wake up so that we'll pay attention and fix our eyes upon the glory that is set before us rather than on the comfort that is here for us now. If you, read, if you just go back a few verses, you see Moses had to pass through this exact same temptation. Verse 24 of chapter 11, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why would you do that? Why would you refuse... To be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Make no mistake, there was indeed great pleasures in Pharaoh's court. There were wonderful things that Moses could enjoy, but he chose Rather, to be numbered among the people of God. Why? Because of the same thing that Jesus displays for us perfectly. Moses imperfectly, Jesus perfectly shows us that for the joy set before him, he was able to endure. 
endure to such an extent that blows your mind if you're paying attention. One of the spots that gets me is Luke chapter 23. If you would turn over there. Luke 23. Verse 28. Jesus on his way to the cross, on his way to Golgotha, he's so beat up in verse 26, we see that they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming from the country and placed him uh, on the cross to carry uh, behind Jesus. So they, Jesus was so worn out, so ravaged by the, the evil work of the Romans that he can't carry his cross, burdened. And what, what is it he's going to say in this time, verse 27, and following him was a large crowd of people and the women who were mourning and lamenting him. Now think of what you might say in your own personal life and experience. You are near to death, beaten, despised, forsaken, betrayed, all the nightmare scenarios that one might imagine in life, the things that you could be afraid of all happen. What is it you might say? There are a group of sympathetic people seeing you suffer. Now think of our culture, our victim culture. Everyone's seeing you suffer. People got their phones out. They're recording this mistreatment of you. They're lamenting. Look what's happening. Imagine how we would spin this. Does Jesus play the victim? Verse 28, but Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Wow. What presence of mind. What sweet contentment. Jesus had wrestled in Gethsemane with the Father over this issue of what he was going to have to pass through. And he he came so settled with that. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And he is so set. He's so content with what the Father gave him the cup he gave him to drink, that in that presence of mind, after being beaten and passing through all these things, he's able to look at people that are feeling sympathetic for him and say, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves. Jesus is not some corny victim. He willingly drank that cup of the Father's wrath for you, for me. There's no victim mentality in him. There's no weakness or softness about him. Instead, we find a presence of mind and a contentedness to be able to speak like this. I can't imagine how anyone else would respond in this kind of torment. So that's a bit of what contentment looks like, fleshed out in the life of Christ. Let me give you a picture of what it sounds like. I don't know if you're going to want to to try to catch all these verses, but the first one is John chapter 4. I'll be reading through these rather quickly, but John 4 is the first one. Jesus, in giving us a picture of what it would sound like to be content with God, he says in John chapter 4, verse 34, 
And after speaking to the woman at the well and enduring uh, crowds being around him and not eating and the disciples come running back, Jesus says, my food, they say, you haven't had any food you need to eat. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we don't find a, a drudgery about this. He says, and to extend that further, John chapter 8, verse 28, he says, I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In verse 29, he continues, says, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What an incredible verse that is. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He continues displaying contentment in John chapter 12, verse 49. He says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That's what a contented soul sounds like. Someone who's stayed upon the words of God. I think sometimes I've seen within myself and I've seen many other people struggle with this too. When we start speaking specifically of the gospel, when we start sharing the gospel with with people generally, we shy back from declaring their sinfulness. We shy back from discussing things like hell. We'll tell them the good news, but we don't really lay lay it down very hard on the bad news. We'll just get them to admit, well, you're not perfect, are you? Uh, we'll, we'll make that about as light as we can. We'll find that uh, you know, we, we, wanna, we want them to accept it, so we try to say it as softly as we can. There's a tendency within us to want to do that. I think that's part of what Paul is talking about when he asks for prayers as he goes before Caesar. He doesn't want to adulterate the gospel. He doesn't want to say a message that will get him off the hook. Paul could have changed his message slightly. If you recall, even back when he was in in, in Jerusalem, when he was speaking before Festus and others, he, he had the opportunity. And they said, had he not appealed to Caesar, we would have let him go. Paul could have got off the hook at various times. He, he doesn't want to falter. He wants to be bold in the utterance of his mouth. He wants to say it rightly. Why? Because the words that we have are, as Jesus said, eternal life. And to say it differently, to change the gospel in some sense, is to give them something that is not eternal life. It's to give them something that might make them feel good, but not save their soul. Jesus was content with the words that the Father and the works that the Father gave him to do. So that's a bit of what it sounds like to be content, and I gave you a bit of what it looks like to be content. Um, here's another question that runs around in my head. When, when can contentment be expected? When should we expect to be able to be content when we've got, when we've paid for our house, when we have enough saved in retirement, when we have the right guy in office that we prefer? I mean, when, when should we expect that? 
when our team wins the World Series? It sounds a little frivolous when you put it like that, but if you look back at the text that was read earlier, Philippians chapter 4, In Philippians 4, we see from Paul when we can expect contentment. Philippians 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, but now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want. Remember. Paul is in a prison cell. Paul is locked up for his proclamation of the gospel. He writes the most joyous letter of the New Testament, as far as rhetoric, from a prison cell. And in that day and age, if people did not provide you food and money and supplies, you die. You starve to death. The Romans didn't care. If you didn't have people that cared about you, whatever, move on. Next, then we don't have to deal with you in court. Paul says he does not speak from what? Want. Really? In a prison cell. Incredible. Not that I speak from want, verse 11, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I pause on the word learned. Because in salvation, you are given all the riches in the heavenly places. You are redeemed. You are blessed. You are blessed out of your comprehension. But you don't get all the blessings all the way right away. There's a process. And part of that process here would be learning contentment. Learning to be satisfied with that which is my portion. He says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. And I know how to live in prosperity. Now, this is incredible. Uh, It's one thing to be content and then have your standard of living go up, right? If you get a big raise, you went from making this much to this much. It's very easy to do that. If you drive a dumpy old car, I drove beaters for a long time, and then I got a new vehicle, and it's not even nice that, I mean, compared to most people. But when I got this thing, it was new. It's the only new car we've ever got got the thing and like it was just like this is amazing I don't have it in the shop every other month you know every month I mean I didn't have it in there all the time there, there was no problems with it and so it was incredible I was very thankful now take that thing away and give me an old beater and see what happens See where my attitude lies most days I still get in that truck that I have and most days I'm still thankful Most days I say, thank you for this. I have a couple of problems with it now. It's got some issues. It's been a few years. So am I still thankful? Paul says here, look, I know how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity. Throughout church history, this hasn't really been a problem. That is the second half of this. Most of the church, most of church history has been poor people. The early church was packed with poor people. Slaves, the lowest of society. That's where the gospel always would thrive. We live in an anomaly. We live in a, a bizarre time, a blip that probably won't be repeated. 
where we are blessed financially in ways and in comfort in ways that just, I mean, we live like kings. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. Paul at different places, like when he was in Malta and some other spots, and uh, Lydia, who had a lot of money, and others who would have supported him and and, um, helped him with hospitality when he would visit and give him the best things in culture and life at the time, uh, he would have been able to enjoy those things, but he didn't let that soften him, and he didn't let it become an expectation. And when he would then suffer greatly, he didn't feel like he needed to have those things in order to praise God. He learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is not a personal act of, you know, lotting up. Leveling up, excuse me, verse. This is how this verse is used now. Whatever thing I want to do, I want to be a Hollywood star. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm a boxer, I want to beat this guy up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not how this is being used. That's not the context of what this is wrapped around. What this is wrapped around is I can glorify God whether I win or lose. And quite often, anyone can glorify God when they win. The incredible thing is to be around somebody when it goes wrong and they lose well. When they congratulate the other person, that's when we go, oh, wow, good sportsmanship, right? That's impressive. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content regardless what God brings into my life. That's incredible to say out loud. That's what I can expect. That's when I can expect to be content in any and all situations. This is why we ought to wrestle with this topic. Why we ought to strive and strain to attain it. So then, how do I pray about contentment? My go-to on this one is Proverbs chapter 30, if you'll turn over there. Proverbs 30 is not written by Solomon. Uh, And I give that little bit to you because I think maybe he wrote the words that he did because he looked at Solomon and he looked at his moral failures, his decline, and maybe this is part of what caused him to reflect. He says in verse 7, Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. Two things he has as prayer requests for God. I don't know how you fill up your prayer journal. I don't know what your prayer life looks like. But here are two requests that ought to be added to any prayer list, really. He says, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. How's that square with the prosperity gospel crowd? I don't, I don't know. Honestly, maybe they just don't look at this. How do you, how do you 
bring that together, those ideas. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Don't get eaten on somebody else's plate. You know, when you go out to eat, see, I grew up with this mentality. Priscilla and I or whatever, we go out to eat and I get my food and it doesn't matter what it is, you eat it, right? And I will take a bite and it'll be like, that's not what I expected. You know, it's not, and Priscilla will look at my face and go, you don't really like it. And be like, my mama didn't raise no punk, you know? I'm going to eat it. I ordered it. You know, I'm going to go through it. Hot sauce will help many, a, many an ill. That's right. Some ketchup, something like that. Look at the history of ketchup. You'll see where it came from. They basically made their, their meat into hockey pucks, and so they needed some moisture on it. So, so that, there's a long history of that. Um, but that's my portion. That's what I was given. Priscilla was raised in an entirely different school of thought. Priscilla was raised on whatever food is brought to the table is community food. And I will try yours and you will try mine. And I'm not going to ask you if you want to try mine. I will cut a chunk and put it on your plate and you will eat it. Right. And Priscilla will reach over my plate and just grab something. And I still like a pit bull look up. (laughs) What are you doing woman? We've been married 20 years and I'm still doing this. We were at Olive Garden and she looked, she reached across and I just went, What are you trying to pull? That's my Alfredo. You know, back up. Now, it wasn't. She she always gives me like the, Brian, you know, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Different schools of thought. But my portion is this stuff that God gave me to handle. I don't have your portion. I'm not supposed to look across the table and go, boy, I wish I had what you had. Boy, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Come on. That is a ridiculous game to play. And that's exactly what the the author here is saying. Give me, feed me with the food that is my portion. Give me what I need so that I will magnify your name. And that's what he goes on to get into as he continues. In verse 9, he says, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Now, if we know anything about money, we know that it, it fills someone's minds with, with delusions. Look how weird people get when they get fabulously wealthy. I mean, history is rife with illustrations of this. Money distorts reality. It becomes a fortress in your own mind, as Proverbs also declares. It is obvious that when people gain a lot when they, they acquire much, they start to think, I don't really need God. And this author sees that propensity in humanity and says, keep that away from me. I don't want that. The greatest good there is for me is for me to be near to God. And if this thing, if having billions of dollars is going to erode my heart and my love for you, take it away. I don't want that garbage, which is how it has to be viewed. Even billions needs to be viewed as garbage, which is exactly what Paul says back in Philippians chapter 3, and he says, I count all things to be rubbish, dung, compared to knowing Christ. Then he says on the converse side, he doesn't want to be so poor, he says, or that I not be in want and steal. I don't want to get so poor that I have to 
sin to survive or be tempted to sin, as he says at the end, and profane the name of my God. You need ammunition in your mind for why you should not choose to sin. And it is a choice, beloved. You read Romans chapter 6. What does he tell us about that you present your members as, as instruments for righteousness sake? I have to build up in my mind an arsenal of reasons why I will refuse to lust after some woman, why I will refuse to covet someone else's money, why I'll refuse to long to be famous or some other thing that poisons my heart. I have to build up ammunition. If I choose to sin in some obvious way, it profanes the name of God. I have to let that sit in my soul for a while. I think of one of the, the worst indictments leveled against David by the prophet Nathan in his sin with Bathsheba. He comes and he, he gives Jesus, or he gives David, excuse me, the rebuke. And his response is, I've sinned. And he says, okay, God forgives your sin. But because you've given the enemies of God the occasion to blaspheme, thus will happen. And he gives him the consequences. Our sin gives people the opportunity to say, who is God? What is he? He's of no real account. I think of even the celebrity preachers, who are not, from what I can tell, many of them even really children of God. They're wolves. However, when they go out there and they tell everyone they're a Christian themselves, and then they fall into some grievous sin, look how the world looks at that. They lump them in with us, even though all along we're like, they weren't on our team. Even though we've been saying that, it doesn't matter. They lump them in with us and they use that as an occasion to mock God and his people. We need that kind of ammo in our head. That kind of arsenal to fight back with. I will not sin in this way. So that it gives people the opportunity to blaspheme God and profane his name. So how do I pray about this? I pray these things right here, the requests that were given right here in these verses. So here's the final, here's an objection though. Um, have I lost contentment if I'm asking God for something? Because if I'm really content and self, you know, sustained, then I don't need anything. And so therefore, is it, isn't a prayer request kind of a, uh, an expression of a lack of contentment? Well, I don't think so. I think scripture makes that clear enough. I already pointed out Jesus' example in Gethsemane. There's never more contented soul than Christ. And in Gethsemane, he made his petition known to God, and God said no. And Jesus, for him, that was enough. Moses asked God to show him his glory after everything he had seen. He still said in Exodus 34, show me your glory, I want to see more. That was not an expression of a lack of contentment. Paul in Philippians 3, if you turn over there real quickly... Philippians chapter 3, right before he says the stuff about being content, he says this in chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained it. He says, look, I, I'm not perfected yet. Not that I've already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and striving eagerly straining 
Reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's not the expression of a malcontent. That's not a prayer request from someone who is bored or whatnot with God. Instead, what we find is uh, a man who is zealous for God, to know God. We lose contentment when we are no longer satisfied with God, but instead we are making a demand rather than a request. So any of you that have ever had a child come up to you as a parent and say something like, Dad, can I have this? And you go, no. And the kid goes, right? And they do a little pout or something, and they walk away, or as they get older, and that was when they're little. They get a little bit bigger. They're looking you in the eye now. Dad, can I have this? Notice the voice changed. Dad, can I have this? You say, no, man, you can't have that. And they go, "Hmm." right? Or same scenario, same basic thing. And they walk away and they don't say anything at the time, but they continue to nag and complain about it. Um, What we have to analyze is that when that happens, when that child throws the fit, and all these are different forms of fits that I express, that when that person throws a fit, look, they weren't making a request. They were making a veiled demand. That wasn't a request. That wasn't, hey, can I, can I do this? No. Ah! Okay, that, that's not a request. You demanded I do something, and when you didn't get your way, you're trying to overpower me now. Um, polite demands like this are not an expression from a heart of contentment. A content soul can make a request and have it be rejected and still be at peace. So it might sound more like this if your kid came up to you. I would like this thing that I'm asking for, Father. (laughs) But if I don't get it, I'll be all right. I would like to have this blessing. I think I would use it well. One of my sons, not too long ago, was writing a, a paper for school, and his mother said, because we're homeschooled, she said, you know what, why don't you make that paper, why don't you write a paper about why you should have this thing? And so his goal was to try to persuade us as to why he should have this thing that he wants. That's totally fine. There's a proper way to go about getting these things. There's a proper way to make a, a petition, even, And for us, in our prayer requests with God, because some of you have some very heavy things in your life. Uh, We have a prayer list full of people with very heavy stuff facing disease and death. But what would a prayer request look like in those situations? It would look something like, very similar to what I was saying with the child, but I would say something like, you know, Father, I would like this thing that I'm asking you for, but I don't need it to praise your name. I'm going to praise your name regardless. You are God and you are good. And I will praise you no matter what comes my way. Um, Many of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards. When Jonathan Edwards died, he was away from his beloved wife, Sarah. They had a wonderful relationship, wonderful marriage and family, had 11 children. Her husband was 50 years old, and um, they gave him the 
inoculation for smallpox, and it went wrong, and he died. Um, again, she is a woman with many children, many things on her mind, and her daughter had asked her something about how she's dealing with it. And here is the letter that she wrote her daughter, Esther. Sarah Edwards took up the pen and she said, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. My God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We're all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. This is an expression from a heart that is content, if yet still mourning, about the loss of her husband. What an incredible expression, similar to Job when he loses everything. Who in response to losing everything, what does he say? Does he curse God and die as his embittered wife would have you believe, would have him do? Instead, he drops down on his knees, tears his clothes, weeping as he ought, and praises the name of God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. That's a contented heart. That's what I aspire to. That's what we as children of God need to aspire to. So, how does that play into Christmas? Let me give you a two-second thing. That plays into Christmas like this. You're going to start opening gifts this next Sunday. How does that play into it? Well, very simply, it doesn't matter if I get what I wanted or if the person responds the way I wanted to the gift that I gave. I'm satisfied. I'm content. Christ has done enough. In his crucifixion and resurrection for me, he doesn't need to do anything else. Everything else is just icing on the cake. All the things, all the blessings that, are, that I'm going to be able to enjoy in the next week or so, and all the, the trials are but icing on the cake. What a blessing it is to serve God. Amen? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that we could be gathered together today to be thankful and to express our gratitude to you. Lord, help us to walk in a contented way throughout life, uh, seeing the examples throughout Scripture of how we ought to live. Lord, may they convict us and shape us. Lord, may we let your word do its work to mold us more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.